Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In T-minus three, two, one, we begin the fun. Touring our way through the NBA from that big, big apple to the place by the bay. Is your mind buckled in? Because it's time to begin. Sacred and his friends are doing it again. The Hang Time Podcast is the spot, so sit back, relax, because the show's about to drop. Welcome into another edition of the Hang Time Podcast. I'm your host, Seku Smith, in Atlanta, and we got a... This is this might be my all-time favorite show we're getting ready to do right now. Um, we, we all know about The Last Dance, the documentary that's coming out about Michael Jordan's final season, that, that fantastic Bulls dynasty, that last ride together, that last dance. And we got somebody on with us this week who was at the epicenter of this whole thing. Andy Thompson is uh, one of the executive producers and was one of the lead producers back during that 1997-98 season, filming and interviewing the Bulls, following them everywhere they went. Um, A.T., you're normally like me on on the playoff trail or heading out to the playoff trail right now. Before we get into about the last dance, I just want to check, man, how you doing? How you holding up with, with this, you know, coronavirus suspending everything um and if you know i'm hoping the family's safe and sound and and everything's good fortunately yeah everybody's fine with my family uh you know the kids wife everybody's doing great um missing definitely basketball big time this is when we're really starting to focus in on our storylines for the season. Of course, I've been following the Lakers a lot the last couple of years, and I, I'm missing basketball big time. But in its place, I got a honey-do list that will never end <laughs> at the house. Don't we so all? So I need man. to get out of here. <laughs> Don't we all? I'm, you know what, though? I, I, it is strange. It's just such a weird uh, experience not having – basketball or sports or anything else right now. Um, and that's what makes the timing uh, for The Last Dance to, to be premiering this Sunday, April 19th. Um, this 10-episode, I don't even know what to call it. Is it a docu-series? How do you guys term this in, in that world? Is it a docu-series, a documentary? Um, yeah, I think you, you, that's, that's pretty much the most accurate way to describe it. It is a docu-series. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, when, when OJ's doc came out several years ago, and that was a five part, uh, that really set the precedent of the world of documentaries as it, as it, as they're making them, constructing them now going forward in the old formats, it used to be in 90 minutes, two hours, maybe max, um, Mike Tolan, who is the producer of this, this series was a genius when he, when he first approached the NBA and we had a meeting with him. And he thought it could be anywhere between five and 10 episodes. And I thought five was great because it mirrored OJ. And when he pitched 10, I thought he was crazy. So obviously Mike (laughs) is a lot more smarter than any of us, man. 
<laughs> now, now, for the people, for these youngsters out here, AT, who don't know what was going on in, in that 97-98 season, like, they, take, take everybody back to the initial genesis of this idea and obviously the feeling you got about that team and about this potentially being their last run together. Let me give you a little quick history lesson. Um, mm -hmm. I got to know Michael Jordan really well over the years. I've been with the NBA for over 32 years. Um, wow. I started in 1987, um, and um, I played, played in college with Kevin McHale, Trent Tucker. And so I had a little bit of you know, friends that were in the league at the time. I, I played overseas. I blew out my knee, and I started working for the NBA in 87. Mm -hmm. And in 1990, NBA Inside Stuff started on NBC, and that was a huge show at the time. It was really a, a different type of vibe to it, and I was one of the young producers who was tasked to coming up with the content and coming up with stories and coming up with you know, jam sessions and the way we, we edit and the way we use hip-hop music and, and just making the show much more culturally relevant. And, of course, Michael was at, you know, it wasn't even, I think probably not even approaching his apex then, but he was definitely approaching his prime. And, of course, we wanted him on every show that we could possibly imagine. And so when Ahmad Rashad came on the show as a host, one of the first interviews that we did was with Michael Jordan. And this was right in before the final started in 1991. The Bulls and the Lakers are in the finals, and we're getting ready to shoot an interview with Michael, and Ahmad turns to Michael and says, hey, do you know who his brother is? And Michael says, no. He says, his brother's Michael Thompson. And so he goes, Wait, really? You're Michael Thompson's brother? Michael was, you know, so tickled because he said when he was growing up as a kid, Michael was actually somebody who he respected and he emulated. And I was like, hmm. Michael Thompson, you <laughs> emulated my brother? He said, yeah, because he was a number one pick. And he wore these really cool puka shell beads around his neck in the early days in the NBA. And that was true. Right. And so he said, I even went and spelled my name, Michael, M-Y-C-H-A-L. I, I liked him so much. And, and, and he said his mom came home one day and saw the spelling on his notebook and asked him about it. And he said, well, yeah, it's because I love Michael Thompson. She says, oh, I don't know who Michael Thompson is, but your name is Michael Jordan, the way we spelled it. So you need to change the name and go back to your original name. <laughs> So, of course, we laughed about it and we, we chuckled about it. And that started my relationship with Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward the next year, the dream team happens. And I was a senior producer at that time. And I was in charge of producing and directing and being embedded with the entire dream team during the 1992 uh, Olympics. Mm -hmm. So I spent seven weeks on the road with, with the greatest basketball team of all time. We, I did a lot of shoots with Michael. We got a lot closer. And it was during that time that I really started loving the fact of being embedded with the team and, and shooting on a daily basis, which, which is something that we didn't do initially when I started working for the NBA. It was more feature oriented. It was more just championship DVDs. So a documentary type of production, this was all new to me and I, I loved it. Well, over the years of working with Michael and, and more and more championship DVDs, when the Bulls finally got to the finals in 97, me and Michael had become pretty good friends by then. And I love working with him during the finals because we would get a little bit more access with him during the finals. Mm -hmm. uh, they won the championship. And I always felt after we did the championship DVD, 
that, man, I wish we would have spent more time with Michael because I don't know if you remember, it was it was reported at the time that the Bulls were going to be broken up, that that was their last run together. Right. Well, you know, and I felt that we had missed an opportunity to really follow this team and follow Michael every day and, and just document an entire season with, with, with everybody. Mm-hmm. So thank goodness the team came to the census, ownership came to the census, and we, uh, they, they brought the team back for one more run. And they said, definitively, this is the last run. And so I was really excited, and I thought, hey, I got to try to make a play to try to do something that we can document this team. Fortunately, Adam Silver had, was just appointed president of NBA Entertainment, and he was meeting with all the senior producers, and he brought me into the office to get to know me and, and to talk about you know, things that we should be focusing on and if there are any projects that I wanted to do. And I just, I jumped right in both feet and I said, Adam, if, you know, if there's a chance that the Bulls could be broken up after this year. I said, I think it'll be uh, just a crime if we allow this team and Michael to, to play their last championship and we don't document in its entirety this entire season and follow them and, and just get behind the scenes and and try to show how great a player he he is and how great a dynasty that this this franchise is. Adam loved the idea. Mm-hmm. He uh he greenlit the program and he he said he had some relationships with some of the ownership in the Bulls and he would make a call to kind of, you know, gauge their temperature. And initially he did and everything came back thumbs up, but the last thing they said was you got to make sure Phil and Michael are on board. And uh, I think the Bulls opened up the Bulls opened up their preseason game in Paris mm-hmm. that year, and so we flew to Paris to cover the Bulls like we would normally do. We didn't have an agreement with Michael or Phil that we could we can be embedded with the team, but Adam met with Phil and Michael while in Paris and sold both of them uh, uh, to let us follow not f- full in initially, but just let us kind of work our way in to get access, and they both agreed. And that's how the genesis of this project started. So, so who were, how many people were on that crew of guys who were embedded with the team? Was it just you? Was it you and some other shooters? How many, how much human, uh, you know, uh, foot, f- footage was needed in terms of how many guys you need to do the proper shooting you, you wanted to get? Well, one of the things I really got to make sure that everybody understands if you remember, this was in 1997, 1998. So there is no HD. HD <laughs> was not invented yet, right? right? So the video format everybody shot with and, and was industry, industry standard was beta. Mm-hmm. So a beta tape, a 30-minute tape, would cost like 10 bucks. But Greg Winnick, who was the executive producer at the time at NBA Entertainment, when we got the project greenlit, internally we got a – a, a meeting and we had to try to figure out what are we going to record this project on? Mm-hmm. He said that because of it's, you know, it's, it's Jordan and it's the Bulls, we should shoot this for, on film for historical purposes because film, because it preserves better than anything. Videotape usually breaks down. Also when, you know, whatever format in the future that we would be using, you can transfer a film and it will never lose its it's beautiful imagery and it's able to be up to HD or 4k. So Greg insisted that we shoot this project on film 
and uh, at a cost that would be, I think, like 10 times the cost of shooting on video. But mm-hmm. to his credit, that was one of the smartest things we ever did because the footage that you're going to see in this documentary, the 98 footage, is all in HD. It is the only documentary that Michael Jordan will be in HD. So that was the genius. So back then, we didn't have a little cameras that you see me shooting with now. So there is a major film camera, Super 16 film camera. There's an audio guy with, you know, the standard boom pole and everything, and myself. So when we were out on every shoot, there was a minimum of the three of us in a room and a PA would also work with us, but they would kind of wait in the wings if we ever needed something. So it was a three-man crew from start to finish, and then from time to time, we would bring in an additional crew if we needed to have something else covered. Right. Now, you you obviously had enough experience by then to know front, back, side to side, which you're doing. Plus, you knew the game. You, you know, you knew the people, the the personalities. But when you're filming at AT, do you have any idea at, as you're filming how good it's going to be, like how how high quality a product it's going to be, or are you really just going on the journey, figuring it out as you go along? Well, and by 97, Michael was an iconic figure in sports. I mean, he had already won five championships. He had been to the Olympics, and his fame just exploded after the Olympics. So with Michael... Anything you shot with Michael is just amazing because that's just who Michael is. He's just an amazing guy on and off the court to have a camera follow around. So while we were were following Mike, which is something that you don't always want to do because they also have another guy on the team by the name of Scottie Pippen, who's pretty good himself. And then Dennis Rodman is another entity and he's a star and a rock star in his own right. So you got to really have a balance, right, of how much do you follow Jordan? How much do you follow the storylines of some of his teammates? Rodman's going off and, you know, having some parties tonight, <laughs> so we got to follow him. So as a producer, you, you, you really have to kind of just keep all avenues open because the storylines on that team were all over the place. If you only focused on Jordan, you're going to miss certain things that are happening you know, with, with in Scotty's world or in Dennis's world. So it's a very tough balancing act of how much Michael you want to follow because he's just so captivating. You want to follow him all the time, but you do that to the detriment of, of missing out on some of the other storylines that we were able to capture. Right. Now, this, this is a, 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 such a strange thing when you're talking about a project that shot all the way back in 1998, and then you guys all know doing it, the historical context that it's going to fall in. It's going to be something that we look back 20, 30 years later. Um, how tough is it for you as producers to, un, you know, to, to put it in that frame at the time, to understand that whatever it looks like in the moment, you got to be thinking about spinning it forward 30 years and what it'll look like in retrospect? Honestly, when we first started the project, because it was mainly headed by Michael being the, the, the superstar on the team, and we had, we had already done, I think, four or five DVDs of Michael, you know, from the Come Fly With Me, Above and Beyond, above, above the, uh, uh, all, of the, all of the championship DVDs. So we were, we were working with Michael on, on a really close basis for at least 10 years, and mm. he always expected 
expected us to be professional, to get it right. And so there was a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure that we couldn't screw this up. So we were walking on eggshells for the first couple of weeks, not even thinking about where this is going to end up, but not being a disruptive force mm. in practice or if Phil's having a meeting, uh, you know, not having the boom in the shot uh, or in Phil's face and it's, it's, it's disrupting his meeting or disrupting a practice. So we were walking on eggshells for at least a couple of months where we had a feeling out process between us and the team and them to us. And when they got comfortable is only when I started really letting myself think about, okay, we're really capturing some great stuff and, you know, somewhere down the road, this is going to be awesome. But, <laughs> but honestly, man, for the first couple of months, you just don't want to screw it up and you don't want to get thrown out and have the project derailed because of something like that. Right. It, it's so strange. I was watching one of the trailers and, and I think it's the one where Michael like jokes that, Hey, you can't come in here. Um, I'm wondering yeah, right. how, how long did it take for the, the, the players and the coaches and everybody to get comfortable with you guys being around? Like with, with had you worked with them enough beforehand that they kind of were used to it or was this different knowing that, that it, I mean, if you guys knew it was that last run, so did they, you know, so, so maybe they understood what was being preserved and, and how this would, would look years later. That's a great question because you're right. Michael and one of the trailers did not want us around all the time. Michael's very fiercely, he guards his privacy very fiercely and, and he does not like the camera infringing on his space his time in the locker room his time on planes his time you know, at practice just hanging with the fellas he he wants to keep a lot of that for himself and in the beginning he it took a while for him whenever we showed up that we're going to be at practice and yeah we're going to be on a bus and we're going to be in a locker room for him to get comfortable with us being around and being himself even though he was always on when we shot his DVDs, it was something that he had grown accustomed to because it was for a limited amount of time. Now, <laughs> Michael's like, I remember the first road trip that we took, it was in Phoenix, and my cameraman goes kind of a little bit too close to Michael, and he looks at my cameraman, he screams at him, and then he screams at Phil and says, these guys aren't going to be following me like this for the rest <laughs> of the season, are they? <laughs> and so right away, I thought, oh, man, what a great way to start <laughs> off on this road trip. But eventually, we, we, we figured just how much to approach him, how much just to let the scenes play out, how much we need to maybe ask him a question to, to get into his mindset. But I would say it took a good two and a half months for the team and for Michael to feel comfortable. And of course, if Michael falls, if Michael's comfortable, then everybody else kind of falls in line. Right. Uh, given the, the amount of footage that must have been shot that year. And I, and I can't even imagine how much you guys had to have gathered. Um, how, how do you process that knowing that it's not going to be something that you get a chance to edit and put together immediately? Like you, it's obviously been decades and you guys had to keep working after that project's done and move on to whatever was next. I mean, how many, First, how, how much raw footage did you shoot, do, do, if you know exactly how much? And then how long does that process, you know, where you have to start over year after year, maybe looking back at it, reviewing it, trying to figure out how to put together when you project it? I mean, this is – I can't imagine 
doing something that long ago and then having to come back now and and look at it again with a fresh set of eyes decades later and figuring out what's what. In the, in the process of shooting it, we wanted to make sure that we were using the right film stocks, the right film, um, the mm-hmm. right speeds, shooting at the right apertures. Uh, some reels we shot with super slow-mo. So we, we would constantly check either game footage or just access footage to, to make sure we're doing everything right. So, so we got to know the footage a lot, even during the season, because we always wanted to make sure we're, we're doing it right. And then as we got closer to the playoffs, we started to realize, hey, we're missing out on, like you said, some, some storylines where Dennis is going off and, and partying, and, but I want to still get Michael in his room. So we, we would have to bring a second camera on board to um to follow some of the access you know by the second round we we hired we had three cameras and by the time we got to the finals we had an additional six cameras rolling on every game because there were so many other storylines that we were we were trying to capture at the same time all around the city of chicago and mm-hmm. in the arena so the footage began to multiply and, and we couldn't check every day uh all of the different um cameras that were rolling but we just had to mainly check the cameras that were focused on Michael and the team. And so as we're shooting, we were getting to know the footage a lot, but at the end when everything was wrapped and, and we did the celebration in Grant Park and we get back to the office and, and we look at, and we actually did a total, a tally of how many filmed roles or canisters should be shot. Mm-hmm. At the time we shot the most film ever in the history of motion pictures it was over 1 million feet of footage which <laughs> translates over 500 hours of of um of, of original content oh my god and that was a guinness book of world records at the time but it, it isn't now <laughs> so when you're going through this and knowing the league the way you do knowing that season the way you did was there ever any doubt that they were going to win that championship like yeah I remember living through it as a fan and the Bulls winning championships back then to AT was just kind of given. Like, I don't care what the season gave us. You knew it was like, all right, playoff time. It's going to be the Bulls. Um, oh, listen, man, they, I had doubt all throughout the season. I had doubt really? in the beginning because Scotty did not start the season healthy. I don't know if you remember, they didn't get Scotty back until I think uh, January or something like that. Wow. And, and then once they got him back, there was, there was uh, rumors that they were going to trade him. <laughs> so between you know, Pippen not being healthy and then he came back and they were thinking about trading him and, and just, you know, the, the teams in the East were really good. The, the Reggie Miller, Indiana Pacer-led team was – they were formidable, man. They were great. I, I remember keeping a, a diary and of the whole season. I, I, I kept a diary, and I remember writing in my diary, I said, man, I'm not too sure the Bulls are going to get out of the Eastern Conference because the Pacers are, are really good. So mm-hmm. until they got to the finals, I felt if they can get by the Pacers, I know they can beat the Jazz. But I wasn't sure that they were going to get by the Pacers and – so listen, man. I, let me. I, I. You give me a second. Let me see if I can find this. Uh, yes, absolutely. Let, let's see here. I didn't know, man. Your diary. You should listen. That diary is going to be worth gold. I, I, <laughs> I don't know about gold. It's just something that I go back and I and I look at it. You know, and yeah. I, man, it, it's 
if I could find something where I I'd talked about, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. Hmm. Let's see here. I got May 19th. Frustrating right now. Wow. So you keep it. Oh, man. Yeah. Let me, let me tell you what. See, May 20th, Chicago. Mm-hmm. I'm so frustrated and mad right now. I couldn't, like, I could spit. <laughs> we showed up at practice like we always do, shot a little bit of access, and we were told we couldn't come, come in because another film crew was in there filming behind our backs. <laughs> <laughs> and I really feel, uh, I really felt betrayed. They said, you know, after everything we've been through right now, the team really hurts. Where do we go from here? <laughs> you know, there was another crew that was following that just started following the, the bulls during the playoff run that, that I wasn't really happy about, but mm. anyway, that's, I don't want to get into that right now. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, uh AT, there had to be so many people at at NBAE and at the league who were working at least in some kind of orbit of this project. How many how many people are we talking about ultimately that have been focused on this thing over the years? A lot. I think as the project got underway, nobody understood just how huge it would be and how how valuable it would become mm-hmm. because you're in the moment but as the bulls started winning series and then they were in that seven game series with the uh the pacers it's like once they got to the finals i think everybody it's the light bulb went off in everybody's mind and they thought okay now we have a real mm-hmm. documentary because if they had lost if we followed them the entire year and they lost in the eastern conference finals and not even gotten to the finals then it really isn't a story. It, mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a it's a half hour show maybe, and that's it. But when it got when they got to the finals, all eyes and attention from the NBA standpoint at NBA Entertainment was focused on this documentary, right. and the pressure really built and magnified so much more during that final run in the finals because now the commissioner knows what's going on. Dick Ebersol of NBC Sports knows, ESPN, everybody knew, and everybody wanted a piece of it, and we're hoping that we can, they can, the Bulls will close them out, we, we get the, the story beginning, and then we, we, we've got basically the holy grail of all films in the can, right. and that made, made it a lot more uh, pressure-packed every day that we showed up on the job. Does the timeline, once it's shifted and, and you're done with that project, you move on, you know, we're talking all these different twists and turns in, in the league after Jordan, um, after those, that Bulls dynasty is over. We were, everybody was looking for what was next, who comes next. And before you know it, the Lakers are going on a run. Um, so this thing is getting shoved maybe – to the side out of people's focus because there's more, you know, current present NBA stuff going on. How do you, how do you go back and, and put a fresh set of eyes on it yourself? Like, how do you go back and look at, do you, do you check on it every year periodically and just kind of go back and try and figure out what needs to be massaged or tweaked or, I mean, are you always kind of poking at this thing on the side? Not really. I think what happened was the um, 
Michael Jordan to the max. I don't know if you remember that. An IMAX film came out mm-hmm. immediately after the finals. Within like seven, eight months, yeah. they released Michael Jordan to the max. So that basically knocked us off of the any type of release that we wanted to do with the film in The Last Dance. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to distance ourselves from that. And at, at the same time, we were also going through the footage and trying to figure out what type of documentary this is going to be. Is it going to be a straight doc where you, you don't have any VO or do we have somebody who voices it? And in the middle of all of this, of course, Michael retires. And so he kind of loses interest. Mm-hmm. So we cut an internal little 90 minute documentary just for our, ourselves so we can go through the footage so we can get an idea of potentially what we can, we can work with and show maybe networks or, you know, HBO or somebody that this is the potential of what this story could be. So now we're two and a half years in. And in the middle of that, Michael Jordan decides to unretire and he comes back <laughs> to play with the Wizards. Right. So me and my crew, same guys, dust off our cameras and mics and boom, we hit the road again for the next two years. So between 2001 and 2003, we're on the road every game with the Wizards shooting Michael's comeback with the Wizards. Um, That didn't really go so well because he didn't make the playoffs. It it ended on a really bad note from MJ. So he basically after 2003, so what are we, five years later now, right? He's like, I want to take a break from from basketball, I'm mm-hmm. taking a break from everything that this film is about. So we agreed to just put it in a can, put it in the vaults, let it sit until Michael decides what he wants to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. It sat for a couple of years and we we're chomping at the bits like, when, when is this thing going to come out? And then Jordan gets involved with ownership. And once he becomes an owner, he didn't feel it was the right time to get involved in any type of documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as the years went on, there was always a major reason in the first 10 years why it wasn't released and, and why it wasn't given its proper due. And honestly, after it wasn't released in the first 10, year, t- 10 years, I felt one of my favorite documentaries of all time is the Ali George Foreman fight oh, yes. and the documentary mm-hmm. When We Were Kings. Yeah. If, yeah, you remember that was that was finally released 20 years after the, the fact. Mm-hmm. So after seeing when we were Kings, I always felt we, you know, at this point in time, and we should just let this thing sit in, in, in the vaults and just mature like, like wine is only going to get better with age. <laughs> and I felt like the 20th year anniversary is what I kind of had in my mind of mm-hmm. jumpstarting the project again. It, it, we tried to jumpstart it again, but Michael still, it wasn't ready. So the 20th year anniversary passed. And then Mike Tolan, the knight in shining armor had known about this project. It, it had been talked about in, in production circles for years and years. Right. And so Mike knew mm-hmm. about the project and somehow he got a meeting with, with Michael's business representatives, uh, Curtis Polk and Esty Portnoy. Mm-hmm. And I know I had a relationship with Mike Tolan from 20 years ago. Cause I worked with him on a show in Maui called magic Johnson slam and jam. So, we had a relationship. I felt comfortable with Mike and Mandalay Films is his company. And he mm-hmm. convinced Curtis and Esty to, to, to have a meeting with Michael. And Mike presented everything, his, his project and the outline to Michael Jordan. And Michael bid. 
And year 20, he said yes. And thank God, Mike was the knight in shining armor that came and he and his production company and he hired uh, Jason Hare, who's one of the best documentary film producers and directors out there. And their team has come in and taken the footage that we shot from 20 years ago and use that as the, the narrative, as the backbone to tell all of the different stories throughout the 10 episodes of the, uh, of the project. Hmm. What was your initial reaction after you saw it, after you saw the finished product? I'm sure you guys have gone over it however many times, you know, since it was completed and then edited again and probably touched, messed with it more and more and more. But what was your first reaction seeing it after somebody else's hands got on that footage that you shot all those years ago? It's a good question because, man, I, the 98 footage is, like I said, it's the holy grail. What we captured is just unbelievable. And it had to be used and it had to be represented in the best way possible so that you really get a sense of who Michael is and Scotty and, and the inner turmoil and the, the conflict and everything that they had to, to go through to win that championship. And so for somebody to come in on the outside and, and to have not lived that and, and know every second of every square inch of that footage, it was really important that they, that they, they met with us internally, myself, Dion Kokoros and David Denenberg, who's really in, instrumental in, in negotiating this whole thing. We sat down and we had a bunch of creative meetings about what we thought should be the, the thing that drives whatever it ends up. And we all agreed that the 98 season and the footage and the access is the, the creative thread. Mm -hmm. And they would depend on us to, to help them with moments and storylines and little nuanced shots and bits of you know video or moments that their crews might have missed or their editors might have missed that when they show us a rough cut i can say did you see the shot that i shot in indiana in the hallway with larry bird and they would go back and check that that tape or, and boom there it would be right there so i give them a lot of credit that they were they, they had a lot of respect for what we brought to the, pro, the, the, the project. But at the same time, we also respected their, their creative decisions and they had final say on what shots lived or what shots died because mm -hmm. it's ultimately up to the producer of the film and the director to decide that. But it was a really good collaboration and I'm just so happy to see that they really listened to us and they, and they took our advice and I've, I've seen all nine rough cuts. I've got one more to watch. I just got, episode 10 today hmm. but in every one of the processes that when we when we get a rough cut we give our notes back and then they come back with another version of it then we give some more notes and then it ends up being somewhere where you know someone has to give on each side and it ends up being the perfect combination of 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 what they think this the story should be and what we think the story should be hmm. So for you, knowing what you know about all these these guys, these characters that are going to be in this in this project, what do you, what do you think is the most misunderstood part about those those people and that team in that time? I mean, I know what it 
what I remember of it. Everybody's going to bring a different perspective to it. Um, Michael's work ethic, his cutthroat ways on the court, all of that stuff was legendary by then. So people had already made up their minds about who and what he was. But what do you think people's opinions will be after they see this, this finished project now? Like, will it, will it change minds about Michael, that team, Scotty, Phil? Will we, will we see a side of them that we maybe never understood at, you know, in that moment? For sure. All of the above. I think you're going to see sides of every one of the players that you never knew existed. What was fascinating was looking at Scotty Pippen's backstory, where the director went back to Hamburg, Arkansas, and did interviews in Scotty's hometown with his brother, and uh, I think it was his college coach, maybe a teammate. And to hear Scotty talk about where he, where it all started, where it all began for him, and to be and to show the the hometown and his home and see the the central Arkansas footage of Scotty back in the day was just unbelievable. I didn't realize I had never seen Scotty except for just a couple of clips, you know, in his, in his, in his glory back in his college, his college days. And what a, what a compelling story. Same thing in episode nine, the Steve Kerr story. We Mm -hmm. always, we always know about Steve's uh, father being assassinated in, in uh, I think it was in, uh, is it Beirut? I think it was Beirut, in Beirut. Yeah, it's Beirut. Yeah, and so just, but Steve never really felt comfortable talking about that. Well, in, in episode nine, he is a full deep dive into the relationship with his mother and father and, and, and what happened to his father. And it's, I tell you, I, I, there's a lump in your throat when you watch that and you can't help but but just mm-hmm. pull for Steve and and just get a sense of why Steve is so humble a guy that he is today and why he is so approachable. And I always say this out of all the guys on the team, you know, I, I, you get a chance to meet mm-hmm. all of them and you get a chance to develop a relationship with every last one of them. I, I develop relationships with, but mm-hmm. the one guy that was the easiest to get along with. And that always, when we needed a go-to person to give a, give a soundbite or just to get their opinion on something, it was always Steve Kerr. He was so approachable. He was so down to earth. He knew who he was as a person, and he also knew his place on the team. And he was happy in that role. And, it, and that made him such a regular, normal guy. And to this day, I enjoy a really special relationship with him because of Bulls, uh, the 98 Bulls season. Right. This, it's so strange to thinking about all these guys. Like, I, I look at the, the trailer and I see Phil, the younger Phil. And then I think about the Phil Jackson that we've all – seen since then and the the Phil Jackson that was with the Lakers and they won more championships um yeah did you envision Phil moving on from that you know all those guys that would that could have been the pinnacle of anybody's career that run with the Bulls either the first three-peat the second three-peat that could be the pinnacle of so many careers and they wouldn't have to do anything else after that their legacies are established but for Phil to go on and do what he did after that, to, to go to L.A. and win more championships with, with Kobe and Shaq and then later with, with Kobe and, and Pau Gasol and that crew. I mean, did, how, how much did Phil grow from the time he was with the Bulls in that last dance season to the Phil we've, we saw since then? Yeah, right. When you, think, when you think about 
what Phil learned during that first yes. run with the Bulls. It's yeah, I mean that was the pinnacle. You can just you can just retire and and go back to Montana and fish and just golf all day <laughs> with, with with what he did with Michael. But, right. So I was shocked when I saw him come back and then he took the job with the Lakers and then inherited the Shaq and Kobe problems and then within his first year he won, didn't he? Didn't he win his first year there? Gosh, I think he did. His first year, yeah. I he think just... he did, yeah. So and then he goes in and has his success with Phil, I mean with Michael, excuse me, with with Shaq and Kobe. It was it was unbelievable. It was just <laughs> Like like Phil has two perfect endings, right? He had the ending with Michael, and then he, he does a you know the three peat again with, uh, with Kobe, with Kobe and Shaq, and then Shaq goes away and he goes, okay, I, I, I can do this two more times, and then he ends up with <laughs> number eleven, which is unbelievable. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a story. So after Phil won, won the eleventh one in Orlando, mm-hmm. and we knew that was going to be his last run, I think that. The bull, uh, the Lakers at that time were, were they were thinking about moving on from Phil. So I'm in the locker room. They're they're celebrating and champagne's flowing all over the place. And there's a the championship trophy is just right outside. I think uh, I can't remember who the player was who was holding. I mm-hmm. say, hey, let me have the trophy really fast. So I take the trophy out of the player's hands. I walk into the coach's office and Phil's in there with his assistant, same guys that have been with him in Chicago, by the mm-hmm. way. All of those guys, Clemens and, and all those dudes, Tex. Yeah. So I said, Phil, you got to hold the trophy. He's like, ah, I don't want to hold the trophy. I said, Phil, this is number 11. You just passed red. I said, you're the, the most winningest coach in NBA history. For history purposes, you got to hold the trophy. And he, so he reluctantly grabbed the trophy and he held it. And then he said, here you go. <laughs> but it, Phil was so strange when it came to – like post celebration with the team, he would initially celebrate, say the Lord's prayer, spray some champagne. And then he would retreat back to his office with his coaches and chill out and smoke a cigar, just like it was any other game, which was, I found so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that, that group too, if you think about that, that group of bulls from coaches to players, the, the, all the different journeys that they've been on since they last were together is is remarkable um you know all, some of those guys have you think about it they've all continued to do different things in and around the basketball orbit that you don't for, you know you never forget them you never take your your focus away from the fact that they were a part of that iconic dynasty um who's well, been the well, guy look at- Look at Steve Kerr, right? Steve yeah. was a part yeah. of that that run, right? Then he, then he leaves that dynasty, and then he goes to the Spurs, where he is under right. Pop. So you could bet I, I'm pretty sure Steve would agree that Steve's Steve's success started by being a player under those two great coaches, right. where he learned a lot of things from each one of those guys that he incorporated into the Golden State Warriors which made him so successful as a coach there. And think about it. Steve has never been an assistant coach until last summer when he was on Greg Popovich's staff at Team USA. Wow. I said, Steve, how does it feel to be an assistant for the first time in your life? (laughs) (laughs) You've only been to the finals five straight years. 
<laughs> that I mean, these and these Warriors teams. I mean, every it seems like to me, at every dynasty since that Jordan Bulls team, whether they realize it or not, are chasing what that Bulls team did. You know. Oh yeah. Oh whether for sure. The number, right. Whether it's the three peat or whatever, but you're chasing that feeling that that chemistry, that synergy that that Bulls group had. Whatever the trials and tribulations they went through, it just seemed like everybody was always trying to measure up to that team. I don't know if, if you've been around for every championship since then. Does it feel the same to you that, that that's kind of been the standard bear that everybody was chasing? 100%. What the Bulls were able to, to do as a team, as an organization, and as a culture that they established, right? Because we hear that word used and thrown around a lot, culture. Well, the winning culture starts with your alpha male coach and player. And Michael set the, the tone in the locker room, and he, and he set it on the court, and then he practices every day the excellence of you know, just leaving everything on the floor. And then also the coaches. The coaches coach their butts off, and they, they looked at tape, and they spent time you know, basically getting to know the players and cultivating – winning cultures where they would go bowling. I remember one trip, Phil came to New York and I think it was 97 or 98. And he took all the guys, they blew up practice and they took a, a ride on the Staten Island ferry over to the Statue of Liberty, just to get away from the game and spend time together. And it all started with Phil and, you know, pop picked up on it. And then now Steve is doing the same thing in his organization. And everything started for the most part as we, that we can look back to in the last 20 years with Chicago's success and its coaches and players that have gone on to inspire other organizations. Yeah. You, I mean, you have such a trained eye, obviously on how this works. I was, I was trying to explain to somebody before I was telling them that we were going to be talking on this podcast and, and I was trying to explain to them the job that you do. I was like, well, they, you know, I was like, they are basically the eyes and ears in the building whenever everybody hits the building like and it's become standard now everybody loves the 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 footage of guys walking into the arena um but for you knowing you know what you know about how this will be viewed later what what's changed in your approach over the years in terms of how you document teams in in these seasons in these games and these people based on what you guys did with the last dance what what did that change for you in terms of how you focused on guys? What changed is that you you can't be a you can't be a a fanboy. You you mm-hmm. got to be professional, right? Because I have a job to do, and the job is to is to market and and preserve the history of the NBA and its mm-hmm. players. Right. And I have to, my I work for them. I always tell players I'm not the media. One of the things I always say, hey, we're NBA entertainment and we're not the media, not that the media is bad, but we're, we're family. So anything you say to me or anything you say in front of this camera or anything we capture stays in-house. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we all at NBA entertainment take very, very seriously is that we work for the NBA and as a result, we work for you. So if you work with me, just like Michael did, just like uh, you know, Kobe did, just like LeBron and all these other stars, Steph, they're preserving 
an image of their of their of their time in the NBA and with their team for the rest of their lives and for the rest of the history of the league. Mm-hmm. And generations down the line are going to someday want to look back and see you or see this era or see this team. And we're the ones that are going to capture it better than anybody else. So all those lessons I've learned by staying the course and being focused and putting the, the player and the team and the coach's best interests at heart, as I've carried that over to what I do today. And that's something I always make sure I sell to the players and teams and coaches that I work with now. Yeah. I know, I know it's weird. We've had so many conversations over the years. I've, I've been one of those guys that spot you in the hallway and you say, Hey, you got a minute. Let me ask you something. And then I never, I never understand how you guys can keep all of these moving parts in order. Like you can piece stuff together and it's, it's an amazing thing to me for you guys to be able to document what you do in, in the fashion that you do it. When I know you were going from one building to the next night after night, you know, game after game, um, it, t- it takes an unbelievable management process. I would imagine to keep all of this stuff straight, to be in the moment at all times, but also to be preserving the history of the game. Like you mentioned, all the time. I, I just don't, I can't even fathom how you guys keep that straight because I can barely get my back backpack and computer packed up every night when I'm leaving an arena. <laughs> <laughs> you always have to have a plan. I always tell producers that are, that are starting and, and starting in this business is that you, you have to have a plan and you have to have not only plan A and B, but you got to have plan C and D because plans always kind of get screwed up. And so now what's the next thing? What's your next option? So you have to have a plan. You have to have a vision. So I have any project, anything that I'm working on, I have a vision of how I want it shot, how I want it, how I want it to be told, um, how I'm going to approach it. And, and I, and I kind of just go through the steps visualizing of the game before I approach the game of knowing the, the arenas. And if I'm not sure I get there early enough to know the arenas, where the locker rooms, where everything is. Mm-hmm. And then to try to make uh, contact with security guards at the gates, security guards at the door, just so that my job is can, can, can work and my crew can work as easily as possible. And I always tell people, you know, there are a lot of producers out there who, who play checkers. I want you to play chess. And when you play chess, as you know, you got to work. You got to have at least three or four moves ahead of your opponent, and that's that's how you become successful as a really good producer or director in this field. Yeah. Is that you have to you have to play chess, and that comes with with experience. Like somebody who is just coming into the business, they're not going to know that. But those are the things, though, that that I've trademarked over the years that I try to pass along to other guys that are coming up after me. Yeah. Andy Thompson, man, this listen. I'm telling you right now. I, I have had so many people tell me that they are digging in. They don't want to be bothered on April 19th at <laughs> 9 o'clock Eastern. When they, like, like, they don't want disruptions. They don't want noise. They want to be able to sit, focus, and watch The Last Dance. It's an uh, unbelievable 10-episodes docu-series. I mean, and there's two episodes every Sunday night. From April 19th to May 17th, you're going to be able to dive in this thing. Um, I, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to it. And so many people I know, players, former players, 
uh, you know, future players, everybody, like everybody I know is dying to see this. It, it, it's remarkable. The, the timing of it, Andy, and the content, the, the, you know, it's, I couldn't think of a better time for it than right now. Isn't that strange how things work out when you think that you're the smartest person in the room and you've got everything <laughs> figured out that I, you know, and the, I'm a man of faith, right? And I really believe there's certain things in life that's just destiny. That's just fate, right? Yeah. yeah. Like when Jordan, when Jordan won that final championship and it was a storybook ending where he scored the last eight points of the game where he, where he steals the ball and then he goes down, dribbles down the clock and hits the game winning shot. Right. You right. can't script that. No. You cannot script it. So, and the way that that culminated and the way Michael did it, and we were there to capture that. And for this to be sitting in a vault for 20 years, that's a fate also. And this is the perfect time that the country needs this. And I think this is why it, it, it was delayed all these years because in these desperate times, when people are, you know, going through so much heartache and pain and death and suffering, this is going to provide a little bit of a spark and a distraction so people could, can, can. so I'm, I'm glad I'm a part of that. No doubt about it. Andy Thompson, one of the executive producers of The Last Dance. Um, stay safe, my friend. Make sure the family is, is safe and sound. Uh, our best wishes, obviously, to your nephew coming back to see, you know, Clay's my favorite player in the league. Um, looking forward to seeing him return, man. And looking forward to seeing basketball again, hopefully this season. You know, Me too. I, my, my fingers are crossed. And I appreciate your hard work over the years, all the work that the folks at NBA did to, to bring this to the masses. We're looking forward to it, man. We, we will all be tuning in. Me too. I've seen it. I've seen every one of them, and I can't wait to see them again. <laughs> no question. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, too, Seiko. Later, All right, bro. my friend. See you, Bill. Bye-bye. Once again, I, 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 we need to say thank you to Andy Thompson, um, one of the executive producers for The Last Dance. The series premieres Sunday, April 19th, 9 o'clock Eastern on ESPN. Two episodes every Sunday night from April 19th through May 17th. The Last Dance, the Chicago Bulls. The, at, the, at the zenith of their dynastic teams, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson, Dennis Rodman, Steve oh, the The story that we've all been waiting for at a time that couldn't be better, you know, to see this, this 10-part documentary series from ESPN Films and Netflix, The Last Dance. Make sure you tune in and check it out. Um, and... Once again, here on the Hangtime Podcast, just always trying to bring you the best stories and conversations we can from the basketball universe. And, and again, we thank Andy Thompson for providing us this one. We'll see you right here next time on the Hangtime Podcast. This one is done, but in case you want another one, here's the link to all the fun from Seku Smith's Hangtime Run. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NBA.com slash Hangtime, or wherever. 